welcome to our Grand Thornton COP28 podcast series, part of the Financial Services Risk and Regula- Regulation Unravel podcast. For this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Griffiths here at COP28 in Dubai. Andrew is a Director of Policy and Partnership at Landmark and one of the founders of the recently launched Carbon Accounting Alliance. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew, and thank you for joining me today here in Dubai. Pleasure to be with you. Just before we crack on with some more substantial questions, could I just please ask you to give you a little bit of introductions to what Planet Mark is and your role? Yeah, of course. So um, Planet Mark is a sustainability certification for businesses in all industries, all sectors and, and internationally. Um, and it's a mark of progress is sort of the main main thing. So our mem- we have over 800 uh, member organisations ranging from toy shops on Sheffield High Street through to Portman and Mason, Volvo, University of Greenwich, you know, you sort of you name it. And our members have to they commit to reducing their emissions each year in order to become recertified. Um, and so we kind of support them in a very hands-on way on that journey and help them, you know, figure out how they're going to achieve those emission reductions and deliver them. Proper path to net zero in a way. That is, that is, yeah, we were founded in partnership with the Eden Project. And so we've, we've been on that emissions reduction journey since 2013. And it was always annual measurement, annual reductions, which back in 2013 was a much harder sell. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine that. And today's focus actually has been a lot around transition, given in the, it's the finance day. So clearly we're hearing today a lot about net zero yep. as being the subject of most of the talks both you and I were in the morning. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Um, and your role specifically is to work with organisations, I guess, to um, to sort of help them on that certification and, and decarbonisation. Yes, yeah, so my, my role, so I, I'm Director of Policy and Partnerships and my team look after how we engage with policymakers, which both includes kind of how we are adapting our own products and services to meet regulatory requirements, um, how we are influencing you know, reg- regulation and policy, and then also how we're supporting our members more broadly with sustainability regulation, helping them understand it kind of as a value add as part of our service. And then on the partnership side, we have partnerships with um, 50 or 60 mostly trade associations. So Institute of Directors, um, Royal Warrant Holders Association, Horticultural Trades Association, there's a whole advertising association. We sort of work a lot with trade bodies who want to be able to provide sustainability support, expertise, toolkits, workshops to their members. But they don't necessarily have that expertise in-house. And so they they use Planet Mark as their partner to, to provide that support to their networking community. Sounds is a very interesting job to start with. Oh, I enjoy it. Definitely. I'm sure you do. Um, and you did you just launched something even more exciting, I think, which is something <laughs> called the Carbon Accounting Alliance. What did you make it launch? I, I guess first of all, if you can just talk us through very briefly, what is it about, and yeah. then why why did you decide to to make it happen? Yeah. So essentially, a couple of um, I I you know I'm a collaborative so and so, and I'd I'd already been enforcing like it's certainly in my team saying that we must refer to people as not as competitors but as allies because you know we're we are genuinely in this for the impact mm-hmm. and we have to recognize that you know if you ask could planet mark certify every country in the uh, company in the world tomorrow no we can't scale that fast that'd be ridiculous um so and nor can we do everything for everyone we're not gonna, you know we we think we can help a lot of people it's not gonna be perfect solution for everybody so you know we need allies to drive the change that we want to see. And so um, I had a couple of conversations with a few people, notably um, Emilia and Hoetz at um, Climate Partner. And we sort of went, so we all tell all of our clients, oh, you should be collaborating with your industry to drive decarbonization and to innovate. And then we were like, well, are are we talking to our industry? Are we talking to each other? No, should we be? Yes. Um, and so Amelia and I sort of came together and went, let's do something about that. And so in an informal way over the past year and a half, we started convening 
a, a slowly growing group of carbon accounting bodies where it's kind of word of mouth spreading. And so we did some, we've done some early actions already and take a few, we wrote a letter to the UK government uh, recommending um, sort of ways to remove barriers to measurement uh, of carbon. And uh, that led to us being invited for a meeting with the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. And so we've started some things already, but then we decided it was time for an official launch and to come out publicly as a, as a thing, which we did last Tuesday. And uh, so week, week last Tuesday, and in uh, I'm, I'm slightly out of date now because I haven't updated the figures in two days. And it's moving very, very quickly because we quadrupled in size in seven days. Wow. And we went from 37 founding members to yeah. announce 158 at the last count, collectively representing somewhere between 50,000 to 59,000 company carbon footprints, which is a huge figure. Like CDP has had 23,000 companies disclosed to it this year. Now, obviously, they're the big firms who are reporting into them, and we've got a much broader swathe here in this alliance. And so really what it's coming together to do is to we haven't really had kind of like almost a trade body for our industry to a for us to come together and collaborate on best practice, how we interpret standards um, and sort of yeah, that technical alignment piece and professionalizing our sector. But then also we were quite hard to engage with as an industry from a policy perspective because who did the regulators talk to? They would have to like pick a cherry pick a couple of bigger firms, but that doesn't necessarily represent the views of an in the industry as a whole. And so now hopefully this will be a, a useful vehicle both internally for the industry, but also externally in being able to engage with us. And who can join the alliance? Anyone who's providing carbon accounting services for you know company footprints, product footprints, um, construction footprinting. If you're providing carbon footprinting services, to organizations, then uh, you're welcome at whatever size and scale and in, and in whatever country. Right now, we have companies headquartered in 24 countries, including places like Sri Lanka and Kenya and uh, India, all, all sorts. It's been, it's been amazing. Fascinating. Okay, well, let's go back to COP28. Uh, <laughs> I guess you've been here from the very beginning, day yep. one, and um, we are recording this on day four. Yes. What are your impressions so far? Um, so coming in, it definitely felt a bit different this year. I think um, it it always becomes quite intense. It's a two-week process. It always becomes, particularly week two, gets very intense, a lot of sort of tension in the negotiations of, of, of what is going to come through. But this year, it really felt like that tension was there at the start. And a lot of people had come in kind of with weapons sharpened spoiling for a fight people were ready for a fight i think that was a large in large part due to in part to the the host nation uae being you know an oil and gas you know big big sort of producer um, and in part because of several headlines that landed just before cop that that cast that in a very bad light where bbc investigation found that um that there were briefing notes for the president of cop to mention oil and gas deals in meetings with different countries now they deny that um but you know the, the mere suggestion, the fact that it's BBC, and you know, frankly, I believe they probably did their homework because they don't like being brought out as as being sort of inaccurate. So you know, that came, and then a series of campaigns also landed where, like, there was the fossil to clean letter, which represents you know trillions of uh, dollars worth of the economy, with big businesses saying we need to phase out fossil fuels. Um, we saw the Make My Money Matter campaign saying we need to get 
pensions out of fossil fuels yeah uh, with an olivia coleman yep. video which i thoroughly recommend people check out yeah it's very it's absolutely amazing but it's so edgy yes, and, and, it and it really feels doesn't it like the gloves are coming off yep in the climate communications it's like we're not taking any prisons now this is you know we're going to say it like it is and um that's creating this kind of equal and opposite forces where equally the the counteraction to that is also rising in intensity and and boldness you know in some of the things i've seen coming out you know there are there's some campaigns which i'm not going to name because i don't want to give them credit <laughs> but within the coal industry there have been some campaigns to try and just rebrand coal as being sustainable somehow which is just it just it's absolute nonsense so there's been a lot of tension and um you know there have been key commitments already but what insight that we got just before cob that has been borne out in everything I've seen so far is that there are really two ways in which you cast COP as a success. You create voluntary initiatives where you say, hey, everyone, sign this pledge, sign up this commitment over here, and we'll kind of do bottom up, see how many signatures we get kind of approach. And then there are the negotiated outcomes. And what I'd heard before and what we're very much seeing is that UAE are going voluntary voluntary initiative after voluntary initiative sign up here to triple renewable energy and double energy efficiency sign up here to loss and damage and voluntarily donate money to it so you know sign up here sign up here sign up here you choose what you put in the loss and damage thing is a move forward but I mean, it's presented as a huge success obviously because it was day one or day two it was really well advertised as a huge success it was a good pr win but when you get under the surface of this right let's 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 you know put some reality in the usa have voluntarily donated yeah. 17.5 million dollars which is, is is beyond peanuts that's Absolutely. dust yeah dust very disappointing in and that. you when compare that to germany and, and and uae who have both put in 100 million yeah. us dollars worth um uk i think was 60 million so so yeah. but this is what this is the trouble with voluntary is that you unless you get to so this is why negotiated outcomes are so important because they are much more binding they're taken much more seriously um and that's why what, what a lot of the pressure that's ramping up now is trying to pressure UAE into stop into shifting some of these voluntary outcomes that they're moving towards where a voluntary we will phase out fossil fuels thing over here into going no no in the final text that's negotiated and everyone puts their name against we want to see phase out all fossil fuels in a transition and in a gradual phased way that's thought through and planned but that's the that's ultimately what a lot of people are pushing for is saying phase out all fossil fuels and that's coming from the current position we're at based on last year's final text, which said we will phase down all unabated coal. <laughs> so we want to switch coal for fossil fuels. Um, we want to switch phase down, which is very vague, to phase out. And we want to get rid of this unabated concept, which basically is a drive for saying, oh, we'll do carbon capture and storage and we'll keep burning, but we'll, we'll capture it. We'll capture yeah. it. We'll be fine. Um, which is simply not the case. You, you, it doesn't work. We heard it from Johan Rockström um, yesterday, who said unequivocally, which I can sort of share in a bit, because I think uh, we, we can come on to talking about carbon capture and storage and things like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and I guess given that and where we are now, which is in, in sort of this kind of limbo almost in terms of between how we're going to get to something properly negotiated, what do you think is sort of realistically that we're going to achieve out of COP28 this year? <laughs> Realistically, I'm not going to be realistic because I think that <laughs> that's a slightly too depressing. Um, I, I am sceptical. I think I'm more sceptical than I've been on any other year. The UAE have a huge responsibility to show that 
they trust hasn't been misplaced in them. This was this has been a big global experiment as to what happens if you not only bring oil and gas into the room, but pretty much put them in charge of it. <laughs> yep. like you've been saying bring us in the room we'll be part of it we'll yep. collaborate we'll be part of this for ages but at the moment the only big commitment we've seen come out of oil and gas is them saying we commit by 2050 to phase out all of that to be net zero emissions in operations, in operations but not in terms of process but not in terms of the, <laughs> the burning of the fossil fuels that we're producing which is just i mean i won't swear i would swear there because it's just that you know what they're saying is we'll fix some of the things that we should already have fixed. Yeah. We're currently in one of the major problems with oil gas is that they could actually reduce their operational footprint in half if they just plugged the leaks in their own pipelines that are leaking methane into the atmosphere at so much greater volumes than they have self-reported. Where now we have satellite tracking of this stuff and it's been found that they are under they are underreporting the methane emissions coming off their pipelines by a factor of 10. Wow. So so they've been obscuring oh well we'll sort out the methane problem yeah but we still need to have a serious conversation about phasing out and the the cop 28 president was found unequivocally because it was recorded to have said there is no science to suggest that a phase out of fossil fuels is necessary to remain below 1.5 degrees of warming that's not true it's just not true and and johan rockstrom I, i heard and spoke to yesterday because he got pulled in for an emergency meeting with um, Antonio Guterres to where he was going, what do I tell them? That he said that science doesn't say it. What do we put in front of them to say that's not true? And Johan has had very clear words with him going, everything is, is already factored in, in terms of you can't say that we're going to use capture, a carbon capture technology because all of our models and our predictions already factor that in, that we are going to do that. Yeah. You can't say we're going to do more of that and not phase out fossil fuels because we've already baked in assumptions about that technology coming to a level of maturity that are necessary for us to do this. And also a big announcement yesterday that hasn't necessarily been heard widely yet is that there was a press conference by the Planetary Guardians, which are led by Johan Rockström, have just been launched in partnership with Virgin United, their foundation, um, where... The latest news from Johan Rockström is that the 1.5 degree pathway direct is now closed. Yeah, it's no longer achievable. We are no longer able to keep below 1.5 degrees without some level of overshoot. That is huge news. And so this whole keep 1.5 alive is now about stopping the curve going too high, where our best trajectory left available to us now because of all of this delay from these climate snails out there who want us to go slower, smoother. No, no, let's keep burning for longer. That has led to us losing this chance to go keep below 1.5, and now we have to go up to 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, and then bring it back down to below 1.5 by the end of the century. That's now the only path left to us because of what they have done. So, um, in terms of what I want to see and the focus, the key developments that I want to see, I hope to see phase out all fossil fuels in the final text. I hope to see tripling of renewable energy capacity in the final text. I hope to see doubling of energy efficiency. Um, I hope to see um, much more of a commitment to develop industry and sector level plans for the high emitting industries generally, um, because we have to, the time for theory is over, Yeah. right? It is now action, action, action. Um, and, you know, we need to do it like our society depends on it because it does. <laughs> you did have a fantastic opening speech, though. I very much admired uh, the team that's written that. It was very, very inspirational and committed in a way. 
it, it was, but it wasn't very carefully worded. Uh, having, 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 having now heard that, because this was only on the 21st of November that he said there's no science. And he, he didn't say it in a place where he didn't think he was being listened to. It was a She Changes Climate event with Mary Robinson, who chairs the Elders, which is a group who represent former presidents and prime ministers set up by Nelson Mandela. He, it was on camera for a broadcasted event. He knew it was being recorded. And he said that on the 21st of November, seven days before God kicks off. I know. What are you doing? And so now that I've heard that, I went back and read the original speech. And yes, he mentions that we know lots of people want to talk about fossil fuels in the final text. It's going to be challenging, but we ask you to be open minded. And now now you go, oh, so you're what you mean by open minded is you're asking us to actually be open minded to, to weaken. To come over to your side. Yeah. Say. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've reread it now. I'm going, that was a cleverly worded speech because it sounds great. Yeah. Great. But yes. in terms of what he's actually saying, he's not actually being that specific specifically about mm. fossil fuels. It was credit to him that he mentioned it. But like now that we know his opinion in a heated in a heated interchange, yeah, an event where he was recorded live and you can see the energy with which he's saying is, you go, okay, mm, which is why there are so many calls now for him to step down, which is unprecedented. We've not seen someone say a cop yeah. president needs to step down mid conference before. I don't think that that's necessarily a good idea at this stage because what then? Yeah. You know, who steps into the breach? But um, it's, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I can imagine. And you did sort of hint to that, but let me take you back to the, the, the whole carbon um, storage piece and the whole sort of um, innovation, if you like, um, around carbon extraction. It, obviously, the shift has been for this COP around or mostly on adaptation and mitigation and clearly these are seen as the ways to do that hence yeah. so much focus on it yeah. what do you think are in a way either the hurdles or um if like the enablers to achieve that is it finance is it innovation what do you what do you yeah. think we need to get to make sure that we actually indeed use those cleverly not necessarily to as you sort of hinted trying to prevent phasing out for yeah. example yeah so do, do we do we need finance do we need innovation yes <laughs> <laughs> yes um uh there there are questions about how much and by whom and Let's be clear that the carbon carbon capture and storage is not a new conversation. For, for a lot of people, it feels like a new conversation. But in reality, this is something that has been being promised by the fossil fuel industry in particular for about 40 years. And they've been talking about we're going to invest in it. We're going to develop it. It's going to be the, the golden bullet where we can keep doing this. And, and they just haven't delivered. And there's this you know, well-known uh, sort of law of technology called the rights law, whereby for every doubling of production of something, the costs come down by, by consistent factors where for solar panels, it's 20%. Every time you double production of solar panels, the costs reduce by 20%. And it creates these huge economies of scale. There are very limited numbers of technologies that have not met that. And it just seems to not apply to. Carbon capture and storage has not become any less expensive, and nuclear has not yeah. become any less expensive. Those are the two technologies that, that break the rule. So, um, yes, we need it. Yes, it's important. Yes, we must invest in it. I think we should be massively pressuring the fossil fuel industry to be investing in it meaningfully as a proportion of profits and turnover, because they'll go, oh, yes, we put 500 million into that. And you go, that's what, like half a percent of your R&D yeah. budget? What the, Meaningless, that you know, demonstrates to us, especially with the windfall profits that they've seen running globally, it's like five trillion of, of of profits, and and we need to 
make sure that, that capital is properly being mobilized, not into developing oil, new oil and gas projects, as most of it still is. And if okay, if you want, and this is the whole thing about it, if you want to put them on the you know unabated fossil fuels into the final text, great. On the front page of a website, Paul Dickinson, the founder of CDP, said this on stage yesterday. I thought it was brilliant. If you want to do that, you want to say okay, unabated fossil fuels on the front page of your website, put a chart, show the total emissions that you've emitted in a year period, and show the total amount that you've abated. Yeah. <laughs> to be really clear that what you're talking about is a fraction of a percent of your total emissions. And we have, to, if you want unabated in there, we need to have a conversation about abated by how much? Are we saying 50%, 90%, 100%? we're not saying where it is now, which is like half a percent. You don't get away with that. You can't say, oh yeah, basically I, I, you know, I, I put a balloon on the top and I just captured sun and tied the bottom of the balloon up and that's there you go. That's my carbon count. I've, now it's abated. Okay, well, let me take you back to uh, the conversation about actually specifics on this COP28. There's been a lot of focus um, around climate mitigation and climate adaptation. And as you hinted already, a lot of mentioning of carbon capture storage is part of the solution. Yeah. Um, so in terms of obviously we have to sort of in incorporate different measures and tools to make sure that we get to where we need to get to. But in terms of technologies, um, do you think carbon extraction and, and carbon um, capture storage are part of the solutions? Do you think that we need more finance, more innovation? What would you think is potentially stopping us of um, leveraging those really in a clever way? Yeah. So I think, yeah, do we need more finance and innovation in carbon capture and storage? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know the, the the models that we are operating on for you know for, for curbing climate change bake in an assumption that we are going to develop carbon capture and technology. We're going to develop nature-based solutions and all of these things that will actually remove carbon emissions directly from the atmosphere and store them for long periods of time. So that's absolutely necessary. The question is, how can they be used? And so the first thing is that they absolutely cannot. Is, and Johan Rockstrom said this on stage yesterday, they actually cannot be used to justify not phasing out fossil fuels because the models that we're operating on and in terms of the pathways available to us assume that we will be doing the carbon capture and storage and we will be phasing out fossil fuels. You can't say, well, we'll do more carbon capture and storage and we'll just keep burning fossil fuels. That's not how that's going to work. It doesn't, it doesn't, the, the mass just doesn't add up. So, Yes, we need to do more of it. There's a question as to who should pay for it and what needs to happen when and what order and how we prioritise things. And I think there needs to be much, much more pressure on the fossil fuel industry where if you're seriously saying that you think this is your silver bullet, great. Prove it in your, your level of capital investment into that solution, right? And at the moment, they're investing fractions of percentages in carbon capture and storage in relation to their overall R&D budgets, in relation to their overall you know, exploration and development of new oil and gas pipelines um, sort of budgets. And so, you know, especially given the windfall that they just got um, with the surges in energy prices, which is in the trillions, they, you know, saying that we will put a few hundred million into carbon capture and storage is just meaningless. It's just meaningless. And they're currently still sort of relying heavily on the idea of government subsidies and government grants, where the UK government alone has said that they're going to put 20 billion into carbon capture and storage technologies over the next like five years or something that's insane they're only putting a few hundred million into solar and wind they still have an effective ban on wind onshore wind farms in the uk where they've they've, they've now removed the ban but they've still made it so impractical that last last year do you know how many wind 
wind well I'll say, I'll say how many wind farms got installed in the uk pretty much nothing right yeah so no farms two yeah. turbines yeah two turbines two turbines in the whole year that's madness it's a solution we know works it's a solution we know it's 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 cheaper it's cleaner it's better and 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 yet we we install two wind turbines in the whole of the year Madness. No wonder we're going to fall behind on these things. So, um, carbon capture storage. Yes, we need to invest in it. I think government should be supporting it, but I think it should be majorly supported through much greater stringency on the proportion of. In the same way as, you know, on auto, you know, car manufacturers, we're saying you must uh, a proportion of your manufacturing must be electric vehicles, and that steps up over time, right? Yep. I think fossil fuel companies, a proportion of your R&D budget must be on carbon capture and storage and it ramps up over time. Great. Yeah, and it has to lead eventually to complete phase out, right? Complete phase out. So you have complete to sort of factor into your pathway, make sure that actually whatever you account for in terms of carbon capture storage actually is working. Yeah. And I'll be really clear that this isn't this isn't an alarmist position. This is this is this is the whole thing that we've been developing and modeling for the past 50 years. As, as what would need to happen and it's a logical thing you can't when you think about like you when you think about just resource use fossil fuels are inherently unsustainable and inherently constrained they could there's only so much they can do renewable energy has so much greater potential um and and we need to shift our society toward that the only debate is about how fast not should we so so we need people coming to the table and we can debate the how fast question you know some people will say sooner some people will say later we can debate that but we need to get to the point where we go we commit to a phase out of all fossil fuels you can argue that it should be 2100 or 2150 we'll argue it should be 2035 2040 and and that's the debate that's but yeah. we're not having a debate about whether or not it's happened it will happen you, you know at, the, at this point they are the equivalent of the you know the horse breeders and stablers who thought that you know oh we can't we can't move to these motor transport vehicles they're, they're going to be so much worse than horses they're so much more unreliable there's no industry for it and then in 13 years you know all of a sudden the, the number one mode of transport in 1900 to 1913 went from horses to vehicles yeah. why because they're better they're cheaper but, you know all of the same things the economics have tipped and we need these people to get out of the way stop slowing things down and work with us or you know, all the regulators need to deal with it and say, no, no, we need to do this in a planned way. But this is not an alarm. I'm not someone, if you gave me a red button and said, you hit this button, it will turn off all fossil fuels tomorrow. No, I wouldn't press that button. That would be absolute disaster and chaos. I wholeheartedly admit that. But just because we can't do something immediately now does not mean you don't have to have a serious conversation about how we do it in a planned, yeah. transitioned and phased way. It's about the planning and the thinking process, but how you actually facilitate the transition because this is the main decision. Absolutely, absolutely. And another sort of initiative that is kind of aiming to get us to more level play field, I guess, is the new EU carbon tax do you think that this eventually is going to lead to more greener solutions and better solutions or do you think that participants would basically just move to a friendly market? Yes, but I think we're not being tactical enough. Um, there's a really good book that I'd recommend to anyone who's interested in both climate science and climate policy in particular um, called uh, Five Times Faster by Simon Sharp, who was one of the negotiators on behalf of the UK government for COP26 and has been involved in this for many years. I know him personally, great chap, but he wrote a fantastic book. And in that, he points out that the carbon tax is a nice idea. 
and it and it will work for some things but not for others if you do it in a very blanket way because ultimately what we're trying to achieve is we're trying to reach economic tipping points you know do we hear a lot about environmental and climate tipping points there are economic tipping points the, the point beyond which a new technology or a new thing becomes more sort of economically viable better cheaper more effective and and that tips into a very rapid cascade where the market then sorts out the rest and the best example of this is that is the um the the the, the sort of the fee that was put onto coal um, and it's the primary reason why the UK has decarbonized as fast as it has, because it's it was a circumstance of two things. One, it was an accidental thing where they happened to pick the perfect price that happened to tip coal into being less uh, affordable than gas. It just it, it just happened. It was just the perfect. And Simon sort of talks about it. he's like he's gone back and he's he was sort of involved in things around at that time. And he's sort of seen stuff and he's spoken to people that was accidental. No one had planned it. No one had <laughs> figured out what the right price point would be. They just did a price that sounded good. And it happened to be the perfect amount that tipped it past that 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 threshold. And that caused this cascade where all of a sudden coal was having to sell its energy below its costs yeah okay. and as soon as that happens the market fixes and yeah. and we shifted to gas in an unprecedented speed because of that tipping point now if you bring in one carbon tax that goes across everything across a lot of different industries and products or even just doesn't doesn't sort of distinguish enough within sort of certain industries there'll be some things where you set the price way too high yeah. in that actually you you're you're giving too much of a benefit to it you yeah. didn't need to do that much you, you're giving you're, you sort you're, of intervened to the market almost you, you're intervened in the market in a way that was was disproportionate to the yeah. need so like because the, the 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 carbon tax to tip um electric vehicles into being cheaper than uh, fossil fuel vehicles would be different than the tax that it would take to tip um zero emission concrete zero emissions steel or concrete yeah. uh to being more ex more cost effective than normal concrete and steel right there'll be different price points for those things and if you set one level one blanket kind of thing you're going to overshoot some and you're going to way undershoot others whereas actually if you're more targeted and at the for industry focused in yeah. industry focused in this for the same price for the same costs to to the market and the same costs to government etc cetera, etc cetera, you can trigger a lot more tipping points if you go right okay let's just say let's imagine that the the cost to make an electric car um uh, more you know uh, cost effective than a, a fossil fuel vehicle is you know 50 pounds and to do it for um concrete and steel it would be 100 pounds right if you set your thing at 75 yeah for everything You've gone way past what you needed to do for electric vehicles. You've been, yeah. you didn't need to go that far, and you're now wasting mm. um, money, the you know, stuff. But you haven't made it far enough to actually create the tipping point for concrete and steel. So you haven't actually achieved what you set out to do. Whereas if you go, I'm going to lower the electric one by 25, and I'm going to increase the concrete one by 25. Now you've triggered both tipping points. Yeah. And so he he advocates for a much more targeted and thoughtful thing, and that is more sector focused. And the other benefit of doing this is that you don't need to do these crazy huge 197 countries all agreeing to a budget, and then it becomes a zero sum game because everyone's negotiating and arguing over who gets what part of the budget here and there and whatever. He said that doesn't work. It's been proven it doesn't work. Been doing this for nearly 30 years. This is ridiculous. Let's let's try a new way. And he argues for much more sector based things because let's say the you know electric vehicle industry 
when you think about, okay, who would you need to convene to totally transform the transportation sector to shift to electric or, and, or zero emission vehicles with hydrogen and stuff? And the answer to that question is China, EU, US. If those three markets, the biggest markets for that product in the world, all massively invest, subsidize, develop, create those tipping points, not only do they move faster within those markets, every other market in the world, it gets cheaper for because rights law then starts to bring the cost down for everybody else and the economic, you force the economic tipping points for everyone else. So they just do it because it makes sense because you've set up the templates and the regulatory frameworks that work for it and they can just copy it. And so you only need three parties in the room rather than 197. You can convene the parties though is the question, right? So where this can be driven from. So it's got to be these kind of intergovernmental operations, because one of the things that Simon points out in his book, which was he found really shocking, was that there was no person at that time within the within most governments whose job it was to speak to other governments about effective policy on yeah. climate change, like in terms of on like for zero emissions vehicles. They had negotiators who were negotiating the international agreements and mm. stuff, but they had no one whose specific job it was to go, we've been implementing these like zero emission driving zones and we've been implementing this and implementing that. What have you been doing and what's worked for your jurisdiction? Like what's going on with you? And oh actually this worked really well for us. You should no one there was no, no collaboration. No proper collaboration. No proper collaboration at, at a sectoral level to share policies that were working well and which ones no don't do that. That was rubbish. It didn't work. We need more of that. Yeah, clearly. Well, Andrew, I know you're going just about to speak to an event, so I'm going to leave you here. But thank you very much. As always, very, very insightful conversation, certainly very educational for me. Thank you for joining me here in Dubai. And thank you for uh, to our listeners, of course. Do tune in for our next episode on our COP28 series. Thank you again and goodbye. Mm-hmm.